Hi, this is Cal Post. You're listening to the Yuck Yucks Comedy Podcast. Ooh. Do you think you're the next Russell Peters? Why not find out by performing on our Amateur Night? Visit yuckyucks.com for information on how to sign up. Amateur Night is only available at participating Yuck Yucks clubs. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Be sure to visit us at www.yuckyucks.com. Twitter. Twitter. And follow us on Twitter using hashtag YYCP. You're listening to the Yuck Yucks Comedy. I don't think so. What? What? Welcome to the Yuck Yucks Comedy Podcast. Yuck Yucks Comedy Podcast. With your host, Jake Hirsch. What is going on, my little yucca maniacs? This is your host, as always, Jake Hirsch. Thank you for joining me on another wonderful episode of the Yuck Yucks Comedy Podcast. Hashtag YYCP. That's right. That's what we're using for the Twitter. Hashtag YYCP. If you want to uh, send us any information, any upcoming events, anything that you'd like to promote as well for the Yuck Yucks brand, be sure to tweet us. Let us know who you'd like to see on the show as well. We're always up for suggestions. Uh, but in the meantime, we are still bringing you some of the best quality and fascinating insight look into some of the interviews with your favorite comedians. This week, we have a very special guest. I had the chance to sit down with this man just last week, and we had a great candid conversation. It's not very often that you have those candid conversations with people because you only really have about an hour to dig as deep as you can. Uh, This man, though, is somewhat of an icon, legend in the comedy world. He has been around for a very long time, and it's it's a bit off the beaten track because what he is doing uh, is somewhat, in my mind, pretty groundbreaking. He is really trying to implement and bring these two genres together. Uh, he is doing a one-man show, and it is about a very serious topic. It's about recovery and sobriety. And not necessarily in that order. Uh, He speaks to everybody that has uh, ever been affected or has been involved in any type of addiction problems. Uh, And he's been going around doing these one-man shows. It seems to be uh, pretty popular at some recovery centers, some treatment centers and stuff like that. But by all means, he's also hitting some of the comedy clubs in town as well. He is... Just wrapped up, actually. Right before I talked to him, he was ready to do his show at the Calgary Yuck Yucks Club. And he's just going across the country, letting the pilgrimage happen for him. Now, you couldn't meet a nicer guy than Richard Lett. That's my guest today, Mr. Richard Glenn Lett. Um, Optimus Rhyme, as he also goes by. He won the Slam Poetry Competition uh, just a, a short time ago. But this guy has been involved in movies. He's been involved in television, commercials, uh, just about everything that you can put your finger on. Like I said, also, very, very big on the comedy scene. Richard's been around. He's shared the stage with some of the the world's best comedians, including Robin Williams, Chris Rock, uh, just to name a few. And he kind of reminded me a bit of George Carlin, to be honest with you. Uh, Just very, very wise, uh, very experienced, and and very honest, very raw. And I really enjoyed our conversation. We talk a lot about uh, what he's doing right now with the one-man show. 
He's getting a lot of steam. When I was with him for the short time, we, we actually got to spend uh, some time together that afternoon and drive around a bit. We grabbed some coffees and stuff like that, kind of got to know each other a bit before we sat down and did the interview. And I can tell you right now, his phone was ringing off the hook. It was just one call after another. People hearing about the show that he's, that he's putting on, the one-man show, and wanting to book him. And I can tell you right now that if you have not seen his show, you need to get out there and support him. What he's doing and what he's, like I said, marrying the two, uh, interjecting some comedy, some insight, some raw experience, and some stories into this one-man show. Uh, you need to go and, and just spend an evening with Richard Lett and hear about his story, uh, his journey. And, and, you know, there's some very emotional stuff there, but there's also some really funny stuff as well. So he keeps you on the edge of your seat. I really highly recommend you go and check him out on Twitter, find out where he's going to be. And also, uh, he's got a great, uh, GoFundMe campaign as well that he is using to support his pilgrimage across Canada and wherever it's going to take him. And I really like that about Richard was that uh, he was willing to go wherever to spread the word. He's not really worried about where his next stop is going to be. He's only concerned about getting the word out there. And if you can do that, by all means, show some support and go visit him. Richard Glenlet is a friend of ours and uh, fully, fully supportive of what he's doing uh, for the community and what he's doing. And it's such a big thing to give back like that. But anyway, enough about me. Um, and enough about um, setting this interview up because this the next hour we sit down with Richard Glenlet and we really get to know him as a person, his story, and uh, what he's trying to do now with his one-man show. So without further ado, let's go talk to Richard Lett. Legendary comedian, Mr. Richard Lett. Hello. How are you, sir? I'm good. <laughs> good. Thanks I'm, for joining uh, me. Glad I don't have to wear the headphones because my voice creeps me out. <laughs> my own voice creeps me out. It's a very seasoned voice, though. Like it's it comes from years of experience. It well, must... yes, I guess so. And people uh, love to imitate it. There's some people that do it better than others. I'm loath to talk about Garrett Clark. <laughs> all he his big claim to fame is his impeccable impersonation of me. You know what's funny is I just spoke to Garrett. Actually, I just had Garrett in studio. Uh, actually, about two weeks ago, he came out to my house. I have a studio out there. Oh yeah. And uh, I didn't get to hear that uh, the uh, the imitation, but I know uh, well, Kira had mentioned it. <laughs> you know who does? Uh, Kira messaged me. And oh, yeah. said, uh, you know what I think would be fun is if we had Garrett call into the show. And I said, well, let me go talk to Richard first. Let me go have a proper interview with uh, 
with Richard, and then maybe, maybe afterwards, we'll uh, we'll do a bit with with uh, Garrett. But uh, sure, that must be that must be endearing to have uh, to have someone. Uh... Well, you know, Garrett, he's so darn charming. <laughs> like you know, he could like whatever. He could screw your girlfriend, and you'd still want to hang out with him. <laughs> He does have that. It's that Australian accent, man. I don't know what it is. It is it's just he's got that twinkly eyes and the Australian accent, and you know, it's just just the way he is. He's and, a charmer. Yeah, he's, a yeah charmer. he's got no real talent, but he's so darn likable that the world just forgives him. He gets up, he does his comedy show. The audience laughs, not because it's funny or it's any kind of modicum of skill or writing or performance. He's just so darn likable. They just want him to feel good. <laughs> so, Richard, you're in town doing your one-man show. Let's talk about okay. that for a second before we before we dig down into some of the past and right. and talk about how you came up in the comedy world. Sure. But uh, it, exciting! I've heard nothing but amazing reviews about this show, and uh, maybe you can tell me a bit about it. Well, um, you know, it's interesting. You know, there, I've been in the comedy for a long, long time. And, um, you know, I had cancer. I had, uh, you know, six years of remission from testicular cancer and five years sober. And so both those things will kill you. Sure. And so the fact that I've, you know, not only had, you know, as Mark Breslin said, you know, not many people get a second chance, let alone a third chance. Right. So, um, you know, but even that, even after, you know, you've, you know, faced cancer and, you know, the, God love the Canadian government for, uh, you know, um, saving my life. Right. You know, if, probably if Stephen Harper had his choice, he wouldn't have. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, he hasn't been able to dismantle that part right. of uh, Canadian identity yet. Um, but, uh, you know, to have that and then, and then you just get cavalier about the whole thing. Oh, yeah, okay, lizard cancer. And then, you know, the same thing with... Um, with addiction, you know, right, and, and um, but it got to a point where um, I guess I just felt like I was weary of stand up, you know. I'd um, seen over the last you know year or two some uh, rather grim things going on in the world of stand up, sure, um, losing Robin Williams and Joan Rivers and. Uh, and, you know, it just seemed like everybody was either dying or raping. Or, right, right. And it just was, you know, like, it was just didn't feel like, you know, there was anything really to stand up anymore. Right. Um, but then I was sort of gifted with a friend, a guy named Aiden Devine. And he's a very successful television actor. But he decided that he wanted to try out stand-up comedy. And so... Um, I got together with him and we did what we do when we were first starting out in stand-up, which is sure. sit in the coffee shops and, you know, talk about, you know, what, what do you got, what do you got, and, just, you know, suggesting some ideas about writing the material. Right. And then you go to all these open mics and you get these open mics. And, uh, and so I was doing that with Aiden, sort of as a favor to him, but, uh, but it really sort of vitalized my, um, or revitalized my, my desire to do stand-up. You know, I said to him at one point, like when we first got together, you know, well, I don't know what stand-up is, you know, really matters anymore. And he goes, no, no, you're completely wrong. Stand-up's very important. One of the best things you can do right. is to make people laugh. 
And, uh, and, you know, it was pretty hard to argue with that. Sure. So then we started hitting all these mics. And, you know, Aiden's got an Audi S4, super car, nice right. car from all of his, you know, Rookie Blue and all those other shows that right. he's been on. So here we are, like, the most highly appointed open micers in Toronto. Right. Pulling up in this S4 and then hitting these, <laughs> hitting these mics and stuff. Um, but it was it was... It refreshed me in a lot of ways. Yeah. Meanwhile, um, a good friend of mine, T.J. Daw, is a one-man show uh, god, right. monster machine. Right. He just uh, he he's been doing the fringe festivals for twenty years, and his shows always sell out. And he's really really good at it. Right. And we're friends, and you know, I tease T.J. by saying, you know, like you know. TJ could lose his phone and write a one-man show about it. <laughs> He's that gifted. So, um, so the fact that I ended up going into, you know, hitting bottom with uh, alcohol and drug addiction and then going through rehab and then coming through it and then finding some recovery and, and returning to do stand-up from a sober place, um, he was chopping at the bit for me to do a show about that. Right. Um, but, you know, I really didn't want to be one of those guys that you know, got two months of recovery and then just started going, hey, look at me, I'm sober <laughs> and this is what it's all about. And, you know, there was sort of these born-again kind of zealots. In your face, um, uh, yeah. Sober people, plus, because the reality is is that those people don't tend to stay sober. Right, right. So, you know, for the first few years, to be honest, uh, I just needed to... Uh, get some real meaningful recovery because right. I wanted to live. It doesn't matter. It wasn't about a career. It was it wanted me to find some some peace in my life and some ability to just be around for my daughter and for, sure. you know, the people that, that love me. Right. And uh, so some time went by before um, the opportunity presented itself. And, you know, so this frustration with stand-up and this sort of... Um, continuing to evolve like when you're in recovery you know things change and you you evolve when you're in addiction um you're stuck and so that's one of the really you know depressing parts about it is you just get this feeling like nothing's ever going to change right and you're right nothing does change because you're not acknowledging the feelings that you have and when you don't acknowledge feelings they don't go away they right. remain the same like i say like like Feelings are like annoying children. They go, Mom, 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 Mom. And finally you go, what? They go, nothing. <laughs> so so when you when you enter into recovery and into, uh, you know, a, a program of sobriety, uh, you have feelings and you get into the practice of feeling them. Right. One of the jokes that I do in my act when I talk about being five years sober right. is I say, you know, five years of having feelings and feeling them right and so um you know that's a big part of of recoveries acknowledging that you're having these feelings and as soon as you acknowledge them that they change like you know my uh my sponsor says you know like when you're if you're lonely feel it right feel that loneliness what does it feel like where do you feel it what is it you know, it's kind of headachey and kind of hungry, and you know they have this physical sensation, and then, and while you're then they're like experiencing and acknowledging that you're feeling lonely, someone comes up and starts talking to you, and you go like, 
dude, I'm trying to be lonely over here. You're <laughs> really cutting that. into my loneliness <laughs> over here by having an engaging conversation. So um, That's a good point, though, because a lot of people, like the minute they feel something so raw and, and uncomfortable, they look for a very quick mask to kind of a cover to kind of cover that up. Right. They don't ever want to dwell in that place. They don't ever want to sit in that place. Ever. And the counterintuitive thing about that is that then they never get away from it. Right, right. You know, it's, you know, it's like everything. I mean, my father uh, passed away almost 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it finally took me a few years into recovery to acknowledge and grieve the loss of my father. Sure. You know, and to admit that I miss the guy. Right. You know, I mean... You know, one of those things I had to do is, is I had to, to be accountable and take ownership for my own feelings, my own pain. I was, you know, I was busy, you know, thinking about my mother's husband or my brother's father. I said, never really go, no, no, this is my father. Right. You know, it doesn't matter that it was, you know, my mother's married to him for 50 years. Sure. You know, what's relevant is the relationship that I had with him. And there were two people in that relationship, me and him. That's it. Right. It wasn't about the family. It wasn't about, you know, who he was in the community or anything like that. It was me and Glenn. Right. And now he's not around. And so I need to accept that loss. And then when you do that, my experience was then, then you start to remember the guy from, you know, earlier in his life and right. those, those good times that we did have together sure. and not just the grim end to his life because right. you know I don't know if you know this but it ends badly <laughs> for all of Nine us times out of ten it ends badly right you know if the, the people that are the most likely is when they just get smoked and right. boom it's done and they no went, idea what it's happened <laughs> but even then there's got to be a moment where you're feeling your skull being crushed by the caterpillar or whatever <laughs> And you go, this is not good. And then it's done. <laughs> that right? so, so for our listeners out there, here's the heads up. We die and it's not fun. <laughs> That's a wise word, Richard. There you go. There now you, you go. know. You can move on with your life being rest assured that it goes badly at the end. <laughs> Sneak peek. What is it with comedians? Because I'm fairly new in the comedy world as far yes. as the last couple of years. I've never heard of you. <laughs> exactly. Most people haven't. Um, but there's that old adage, you know, comedians are a tortured souls. And, and, you know, it's a lot. It's very cathartic to get up on stage and talk about you know, shortcomings and, and, and things that happen in your life. Did you always have that, that feeling where that you needed to expose your inner self and, and be real with the crowd and, 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 and have that? Did, was it always a, a, a difficult time for you? Oh, no. I think that, you know, comedians are motivated in the same way that everybody in the male world is motivated, which is to try and meet girls. Right, right. You know, I, you know, I don't know if we ever get around to, you know, acknowledging where these jokes are coming from or what this pain is about until, you know, we've gone into a, you know, a level of adulthood. Um, I think a lot of uh, comedians find an identity within comedy. Mm -hmm. And no, certainly that was the case for me. I um, was, I was a school teacher, actually. I taught English and drama. Didn't get into comedy until I was 26 years old. But, um, but at that point, you know, I I guess the point was that I had something I could say that I did 
or was while I tried to figure out what I was actually going to be. Right, right. And then enough time went by that I went, oh, I think I am that. Right. And uh, and so I, that was the process of going, you know, what do you do? Well, I do stand-up comedy. And then, you know, eventually people know you as, you know, that comedian. Right. Um, of course, that, you know wears thin after a while mm -hmm. and you know you get to a point where you would like to be taken seriously about some things right you know it's weird when you're a comedian that uh you know when you say something that's not funny they go well that wasn't funny right they expect and you then, to be on all the time right and right. then if you are funny they go oh you're just doing your act right so you know in a certain way it drives you into isolation sure because you don't feel like you can respond to anything because if you say something funny then they think you're just, you know, putting on your act and right. wearing a mask. And if you say something serious, they go, well, you know, that wasn't very funny. So, right. so you know, the other thing is that, you know, comedians are really serious people. Right. They think about things deeply and they feel things deeply. And the idea that we might be making jokes about something because we don't think it's important is exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. We, we make fun of things because we do think they're important. Right. And that's, you know, where people sometimes perhaps get confused that when we're being dismissive about, you know, Stephen Harper or, you know, make, you know, sort of jokes about that, that we don't care. No, we care a lot. And that that inspires our, our jokes. And so the idea that the tortured soul uh, becomes the comedian or the painter or the poet. Uh, there's certainly something to that, but I think more specifically, we we just we just care about things, right? And we right. want to express that and meet girls. Yeah, <laughs> meet girls. That seems to be a pretty common theme. Another big correlation that I've seen uh, with comedy, and and you know, a lot of people seem to have a lot of. You know, obviously, dependency issues and, and, and stuff uh, around the club. There's a lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol. Sure. And, and people seem to uh, to gravitate towards that. I mean, obviously, we've lost a ton of great to uh, comics. And, and you oh, know, it's, oh, it's, it's, you know, even from the names back in the day from, from you know, Belushi and Farley and some of those guys to even, you know, modern day, you know, people uh, having these problems. And, and I've noticed a lot, even on the on the comedy circuit, yeah, a lot of comedians need to have that drink before they get up on stage. They need to have a couple of shots, or, or they always walk around with that alcohol uh, in their hand. Is that something that, that in your experience in, in comedy, is that something that, that's always been there? Well, you know, I certainly talk about that in my show, Sober But Never Clean, right. and the, the idea that stand-up itself is an addiction. Right. You know, when I did stand-up, the first time I did it at the Sidetrack Cafe in Edmonton, the way they did it is that you could go for as long as you had the audience laughing, right. but when you lost the audience, Gord, the sound guy, would play O Canada very loudly, <laughs> and you were done. That and was your cue to get the hell out right, of the stage. Very well, yeah, because you couldn't be heard over the... Nah, 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 nah. Anyway, so... The very first time I did stand-up, I did 18 minutes before I got O Canada. Holy shit. Exactly. And I was getting paid within three months. And I did my first headline show three and a half years after I started stand-up. Wow. That's unheard of today. Very unheard of, yeah. But, you know, that's part of my show. And when I was working on the show, I realized what I was saying there is like, 
you know, 18 minutes, that was like smoking pot. Mm -hmm. And getting paid after three months, that was doing cocaine. Right. And headlining in three and a half years, that was heroin. Wow. And so you start to see that the drug of choice that I was dealing with was stand-up. Right. And, um, but, you know, chasing the dragon of stand-up is as doomed as heroin. Mm -hmm. Because it's just, you know, not going to be enough. Right. It's never going to be enough. So when you see comedians that are... You know, they do the show, they get a bunch of dopamine, a bunch of adrenaline, and now, and then, you know, they're crashing after the show. So right. now they're headed outside to smoke a joint or lined up at the bar getting shots or someone's left to bump on the toilet for you. Right. And, uh, you know, and you're just trying to keep that level up. Right. The recovering addict slash comedian uh, needs to be able to ride that out. Right. And the way that we do that is, you know, I call it being right-sized. And when you're right-sized, that means that you don't get too full of yourself, so you don't go too far up, you know, with the audiences clapping and cheering and, you know, and laughing at your stuff. Sure. And then you don't crash so far down. Right. Got to find, you know, not the mountain top or the valley but the green pasture in the middle right. is where you need to remain and um, it may sound boring but it's actually peaceful and a lot of times um, people mistake peace for boredom mm -hmm. you know I have an opportunity to work with uh, a lot of people that are addicts and they go like, nothing's going on so I said, well, let's talk about what's not going on. Right. Let's talk about the police you're not running away from. Let's talk about the phone calls you're not avoiding. Right. Let's talk about the injuries that you're not trying to get fixed in the emergency ward. <laughs> That's right. right. It's actually a peaceful place to not have to deal with that. Right. Yeah. And so, um, because, you know, part of that addiction to stand-up is the addiction of the drama. Sure. Oh, we love the drama. Right. And everything is like, everything's awesome. I am awesome. This is going to be great. I'm going to be a rich and famous star. Or this is shit. And I'm never going to be anything. And what's right. the point of all of this? Right. That's crazy. Yeah. I know. It is literally crazy. Wow. And, uh, and of course, the, the industry feeds that. The comedy industry feeds that. And, you know, society feeds it as well. Right. You know, with all these, you know ridiculous movies and stories you know they're they're all about you know like these you know huge peaks and valleys right but you know the the really uh solid people in the world just you know kind of stay chill it's kind of a buddhist thing definitely you know? yeah and uh so when i started to um understand about myself and understand that about comedy and in my relationship to comedy, uh, some uh, ideas sort of presented themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, the show itself is a result uh, kind of of going to see my shrink. My, you know, I call him Shrinky. And uh, <laughs> Shrinky says to me one day, because I was pissed because I you know, wasn't getting what I wanted out of stand-up and just didn't, you know, and he said to me, well, what is it that you do? And I said, well, I'm a, I'm a AAA headliner for Yuck Yucks. Mm -hmm. And I'm a uh, full actor member of, you know, of the Actors Union for TV and film. And I'm a 
2013 National Slam Poetry Champion. Mm -hmm. And I play the piano and I write music. And I um, have written a bunch of plays and I'm a highly regarded writer. Mm -hmm. He goes, oh, well, is there any way you can do all this at the same time? And I went, oh, no, (laughs) no! Because the answer, of course, was a one-man show. Right. And, you know, there's like always 15,000 reasons not to do something. Right. And one reason to do it. Right. So I gave Shrinky some of the 15,000 reasons why I didn't want to do a one-man show, that everybody does a one-man show and it's hard work and you, you know... You, know, you end up with less money than you started with and, you know, the self-indulgence and all that kind of stuff, right? right? But the seed had been planted in my head, right? And so, um, you know, opportunities started to present themselves in a way that I couldn't really understand um, it, you know, being anything but needing to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is kind of strange, but I'm a Presbyterian. Right. And, uh, you know, Presbyterians are like a Catholic asked me once, what does a Presbyterian believe in? I said, forgiveness. Right. He said, oh, I don't think I can handle that. (laughs) But so one day I was reading uh, in the, uh, you know, I was being one of the readers, the liturgists that get up and read in Protestant churches, the Catholics, I don't let you in here anyway. Anyway, but anyway. So I was reading, and, I was, and it, was, it was Ascension Sunday. Mm-hmm. And so I was reading about, and Ascension Sunday is like 40 days after the resurrection of Christ. You know, Christ is with his disciples, and he goes, um, I'm in the way here. Uh, I was baptized by John the Baptist. You've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. You've got to go out there and spread this message and do the work. Sure. I'm out. Right. I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, that's basically <laughs> the gist of it. That's right. <laughs> He said, you guys get to work, I'm out of here. And sure enough, off he goes. Uh, and, and so then all these disciples are standing around looking up to the heavens, and these two men in these white cloaks say, men of Galilee, why are you looking to the heavens? The work is here. Mm-hmm. And so I read this in a bunch of in church, and it really sort of struck me. There I was being a sponsor, being this you know spiritual guide, as you can imagine, me being a spiritual guide to all these these young guys uh, in recovery, but what was I really doing with myself, right? right? And it just struck me that, you know, I'm 55, and, you know, I could easily live another 30 years, and that's a long time to have given up. Right. Go, ah. So, so, you know, that inspired me to maybe do some work mm-hmm. and see what else I could do. Right. And so I got a hold of TJ. Well, actually, I had some gigs in Vancouver, and there's a little pub in Vancouver with a, a, a cute couple with a couple of little kids called the Corduroy. Mm-hmm. And, and so I got a hold of them and said, "Who's booking your comedy?" They said, "Well, we're not doing comedy, but we'd love to do a show with you." Mm-hmm. I went, "Oh, okay." Um, so uh, so we picked a date, and then I just kind of left it alone for a while, and then this by this idea of this one-man show, I started mentioning it to people, and they said, oh, that would, I'd love to see that, that'd be great, and everyone's, you know, really into this, and, you know, and I'm starting to realize that, um, you know, comedy craves the young and unadorned, there's, you know, like, they're always looking for the next 25-year-old with, 
you know, seven minutes of comedy to right. put on some TV show and like some indie rock band or something like that. Sure. And uh, seasoned journeyman headline comedians are, you know, that quota is filled. But if you're going to do a story about your life, suddenly my my length in, in comedy and my experience of doing all those shows all those years gave me credibility. Mm-hmm. So what was working against me when it came to Just for Laughs and some of these other festivals in the world of, of doing an autobiographical one-man show was my strength. Right. So, um, so I got old to TJ, and I said, I got this room uh, in Vancouver, and I'm thinking about maybe trying out a one-man show. Right. And TJ went, I will be in Vancouver during that time. <laughs> and that, by the way, is an impeccable, even Garrett Clark couldn't do TJ Dawes as well as I do. Um, and it was remarkable because, you know, here's this, you know, super director and good friend who was going to be in Vancouver during that time period. Like if I could have written a Canada Council grant to develop a one-man show, right. I would have picked the corduroy i would have picked vancouver i would have picked that time of year i would have picked tj Daw to work with me to develop this thing sure. it's all just laid out there and so so it's just a matter of doing that right so um i played the piano for a long time as a you know from childhood but never in a show right uh just because i didn't um feel confident enough about playing a musical instrument in in front of people right. and Take it out of the piano, because the piano, you have to bring one. Mm-hmm. Like if it's a guitar, you can just like plunk away and everyone goes, oh, he's just like using that as a prop. Right. But if you bring a keyboard onto the stage, people are going to be going, this motherfucker better be able to play it. <laughs> he better show up. Right. <laughs> so, um, but I phoned up the corduroy and I said, do you have a keyboard? And they said, yes, we do. So there we go. Oh, well, it's there. I won't have to bring it in. Right. So maybe I'll try and, you know, put, bring some of my piano into this one-man show. Right. And then, of course, I had this poetry that's winning the, you know, as Optimus Rhyme, mm-hmm. the national, we won in 2013. My the teammates and I won the uh, Slam Team Championships, and it was uh, an extraordinary experience. And, and so there was that. And then... Um, the stories that you know we tell in recovery, we have this fellowship where we sit around and tell each other our stories. So I sort of cobbled together this show um, and did a bunch of stand-up, uh, some poems, talked about being Optimus Rhyme, uh, told some of my stories about uh, being in recovery and played some of my piano. And, um, and you know, it was... It was good when people liked it and all that. So then uh, TJ and I got another opportunity. The bar asked if we could do it again. Wow. So 10 days later, we got together over that 10 days. Mm-hmm. And, and TJ said, you know, that he said, you know, Rick, I believe you're a stand-up comedian. And I believe that you're a good stand-up comedian. I don't think you need to do stand-up comedy in this show. Right. Because a lot of the, st- the stand-up was me going, and this is what stand-up comedy looks like. <laughs> right, right. And so um, that was scary. Is, 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 it, is it scary because you're used to leaving an audience at a good place all the time, making them feel it's going to be good, it's going to be all right, and this is really the first time where you're leaving them feeling maybe at times a little uncomfortable just mm-hmm. because 
that's the story. That's the truth. Well, it's you know to, to put it more simply, it's my comfort zone. Right. The way that I've been, you know, keeping myself safe from the demons uh, of my own mind and the, the fear of not being good enough for um, in my world was to be funny. Sure. So I could always like count on that. If I was making them laugh, then everyone was good with it. Right. You know, and you know they they might not kill me. Sure. And. Uh, so to take away that, you know, that safety net of stand-up. That's a real risk. Yeah, big risk. So, but, you know, TJ knows what he's talking about. And, you know, I, I asked him to direct me not to pat me on the back. Right, right. So um, he uh, was right. We uh, got, and he also said, you know, this Optimus Rhyme stuff you know, like a, a loaded person could do that, could win the national championship. It's not really part of the story. Right. The story is about you getting, you know, recovery. So, um, so I, I took uh, the Optimus Rhyme stuff out, and the stuff about cancer. All these are one-man shows for later, I guess maybe. Sure. So we simplified what the show was actually about, and then. Uh, the four different ways of of telling a story mm-hmm. with music, with poetry, with stand-up, with storytelling, um, they were all brought to bear, but only if they served the story. Mm-hmm. So if there was some stand-up bit that was extraneous or a poem that was good but didn't have anything to do with it, then it had to go. Right. You know, as they say, you know, you know kill your babies, right? Right, right. So... Um, so so we worked on it. We sat, we had the 10 days in between the two shows. And then TJ would say, well, I need a story about, you know, how you got into stand-up. So I would tell him, you know, about how I got into stand-up. He goes, well, that's good. We'll write that and learn it. So so I wrote it, and then I read it to him. He goes, yeah, that's good. So I learned that. And so, so then the stories that he got me to write and learn were making the stories that I was just telling off my ass mm-hmm. – Look like they were just me talking off my ass, and so it's kind of like when you clean your apartment, you clean one corner, everything else looks like, like shit. <laughs> right. So these these other stories needed to be written and learned as well. Sure. And now I now I had a a play, a script that I needed to to hone and edit and write and Polish learn, and look good, yeah. just so I could get back to it being just as good as the first time you did it. Right, you know, it's like right. everything else you like. You fluke it the first time, and then you have to go back and try and make it... Recreate that magic. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, did that. Um, there, that second show, a lot of poets and artists came out, and they they validated that my piano was good and that my singing was singing. And, uh, and then uh, something really uh, sort of fortuitous, a god shot, they might say, was that I booked uh, a flight one week later than I thought I did. Mm-hmm. And so I had an extra week in Vancouver. Right. And during that time period, um, the uh, rehab center, uh, the treatment center that I went to, Kinghaven, got a hold of me and said that they would be love to have me come out and do my show there. Right. So at 9.30 in the morning, I went out and did the show for the staff and the clients at Kinghaven. Wow. And they loved it. And standing O and... You know, I had all CDs for all of them. I just they all lined up and got CDs, and and the staff were in tears and all that stuff. And and you know, because I really needed them their permission, right? 
you know, I didn't need their permission, but I personally needed their permission because it was felt like a little awkward that you go in and, you know, taking your sort of privilege of being someone who was recovered for whatever reason or in recovery right. and, and, you know, sort of exploiting other people's misery. Right. So um, they uh, made it quite clear to me, the head of that a treatment center, that know that I had earned the right to talk about this and that I should talk about this and I should do this show. Wow. So that was a real, you know, breakthrough for me as far as the show going, right? Absolutely. So then, then it became a matter of applying to fringe festivals and, you know, all the fringe festivals are lotteries now. So right, you put right. 50 bucks in and then just watch that get pissed away and it get <laughs> drawn while some mime with a lisp. I don't know what a mime with a lisp. How would you know he has a lisp if he's a mime? I'm sorry to all the people with speech difficulties and mimes. You can go fuck yourself. The, m- <laughs> the mimes can fuck off. <laughs> but anyway, they got the spots in the festivals that I, I wanted. Right. And so... You know, it really wasn't happening, and I didn't know what to do about it. But meanwhile, um, there was a guy who uh, put on Facebook, if there's any spoken word artists that were interested in uh, applying for a grant. Right. He was a sound engineer guy, and so um, another friend saw this, sent the link to me, said, I thought of you when I saw this, so I got a hold of him. Right. And Michael Osh is this brilliant sound engineer, uh, and I sat down and we talked, you know, worked out what I was going to do with the show as far as touring it with these fringe festivals and and having a CD because it was a, a, a grant to record a spoken word CD. Right. And um, and we got eight grand to record the CD. No way. Yeah. So here I am in the studio working on this show. Meanwhile, I'm not getting into any of these comedy festivals. Sure. Or not comedy festivals, fringe festivals, right? So, so it looked doomed. But I, but meanwhile, the show was continued to develop because I was recording it in the studio. Right. So you know, I was rewriting it and owning it, and I was on the piano and having to learn to play that well. You know, because it's much different playing the piano at home when nobody's listening and sitting there in a in in front of an audience. Sure. And there's another level up from that, and that's playing it in the studio, right? Where right. every slip of the key is record, recorded, you know, for and, forever. And time is money yeah. in the studio. Oh too. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that eight thousand got used up rather quickly, but we did get um, a CD out of it called right. "Sober but Never Clean," and now I have this, you know, Skookum CD that I uh, can sell. Or, you know, give to treatment centers if they want to know if they want to do the show. I can say, well, you can listen to this. Here, right. Here's the show. So so the, so the process of this show developing in a... It's very difficult to rehearse a one-man show because, sure. you know, unless your director's there. And TJ lives in Vancouver. Um, it's difficult to be disciplined enough to do it. Right. But by having this grant and having to go in on Monday and Thursday for you know, a couple of months to record this stuff that that gave me some of the discipline to do that. Sure. Meanwhile, um, I wasn't getting any, I didn't get into Montreal, didn't get into Toronto, didn't get into Ottawa, didn't, you know, and TJ was in Vancouver. He said, yeah, we didn't get drawn to Vancouver. And then uh, he calls me back and says, well, actually, you're second on the waiting list in Vancouver um, for the national uh, slots. 
which is a pretty uh, good chance you'll get in. Right. So that gave me a little bit of hope. And so then I decided, well, I'll try Hamilton. Hamilton runs the same time as Ottawa. So I will uh, apply to Hamilton. And boom, I get drawn in Hamilton, right? Wow. And so now, and Hamilton's it, you know, happens in uh, mid-July. Right. And so, uh, you know, as I'm waiting for the Calgary Fringe Festival, which I was third on the waiting list, and Victoria, seventh on the waiting list, and Vancouver, second on the waiting list, Hamilton was for sure, and it was the first one up. Right. So that forced me to put the show together. Right. No more dilly-dallying around. I had a show that... You got something open. on the books. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, the way things kind of work out, even though, um, you know, you would think Hamilton, I mean, the reality is Hamilton is a very big city. It's the same sure. size as Calgary or Edmonton, right? right? We just think it's, you know, crappy because parts of it are crappy. But anyway... Um, <laughs> But, you know, nobody would, you know, in Edmonton hang out at, you know, on, you know, 120th and go, oh, Edmonton's a sketchy place. Right, right. right. Um, but anyway, uh, so I'm in the Hamilton Fringe Festival, and the great thing about the Hamilton Fringe Festival is that, like, people that got the Toronto Fringe Festival, they didn't get any reviews, like the maybe one review. from. Right. I got six reviews in oh, Hamilton because there's, you know, all these people are... There's less shows, and there's, right. you know... So we had a bunch of reviews, and, um, you know, Mark Breslin came out to Hamilton, because Hamilton's, you know, like 45 minutes away from Toronto. Right. And came out and saw the show, and really, really liked it. Wow. So, so there's, there was something else going on here than me trying to get on these fringe festival, festival circuits. Right. These are people that go out for months. They're gone, like four or five months. They just go from one... Fest with the others sleeping on couches, and you you meet them at the end, and they they look like Tom Hanks, you know, from that <laughs> Castaway. Castaway. By the time they're done, they, yeah. you're talking to their volleyballs and right, like long they're, hair, they're sitting there, you know, in Victoria in some pub with their <laughs> long hair and their volleyball, going, "We could have got a review in Edmonton, but we didn't," you know, and so, you know, something else was going on. Sure, and. The great thing about being in recovery and acknowledging feelings is that you have to acknowledge that you have, you're powerless. Right. That is step one. I'm powerless over alcohol and my life is unmanageable. I'm powerless over everything. Mm -hmm. Powerless over fringe festivals, powerless over lotteries, powerless over reviews, powerless about, you know, everything. Right. right? And once you embrace that, that you have no control over any of this stuff, then you're free because right. you just get to do what's right in front of you. Sure. You go, well, I I do have the power to drink this coffee, and here we go. Right. Mm. How hard is that, though, Rich? I mean, if, if you're, if, if I mean, it's people that, that have, you know, uh, addiction problems, uh, I would imagine a big part of some of their recovery is staying away from some of those old places, those old patterns, those old people you're having to still stick it out in some of these clubs and be around a lot of that type of stuff. How sure. difficult is that? Well, um, it's difficult. I would imagine. But, but um, you know, we do have this fellowship, so wherever I tour, I get to go um, and meet up with other alcoholics, you know, and uh, hang out and, uh, you know, and we understand each other. Sure. And we get this opportunity to, you know, like go to, like when I'm in Newfoundland, 
you know, I just go and hang out with a bunch of alcoholics. And these are people in recovery, so right. you're meeting the whole spectrum of people from that society. Like when you're touring around and you're just like, you know, um, you know, when you're as a comedian, you're meeting the hotel staff and the other comedians and the, you know, and the club staff, and that's about it. Right. Um, and you know, you hole up in a hotel, and it's, it's a breeding ground for, for you know, drug and alcohol abuse. Sure. You're bored, and you don't, you're not motivated to go out and do anything. Right. When you're in recovery, you have to get out. You, you go have to go yeah. and meet up with some other alcoholics in, from that town. And tell your story, or you're dead. Right. So um, that gives you the opportunity to get out, and so you meet like the whole spectrum of people from that town. Right. And uh, and those people are are like they're your tribe, and so you you don't have to worry. You don't have to be alone. Right. Ironically, the the uh, sort of solitariness that you experience uh, early in recovery from fact that you know you've done your show and now you're a big buzzkill and all the other comedians are going off to you know like get loaded or party or to whatever party after, and yeah. you're not doing that right then you know that kind of uh, loneliness but then the next morning uh you're awake at nine o'clock in the morning and you figured out you know where you can you meet up with you know some other alcoholics and then you go there and while your buddies are crawling out of bed at three in the afternoon, mm-hmm. you've already been out and about and experienced, uh, you know, the world, you know, in in the daytime. Exactly. And so then you then you start to change, right? And you you evolve and your brain changes and suddenly you, you know you're not interested in going and chasing skirts till three in the morning because right. you're interested in getting some sleep because you want to meet some uh, of the you know people that are alcoholics who are in St. John's or Calgary or Vancouver, all that kind of stuff. Sure. And you get a whole different um, view of the world. Definitely. And you get to have conversations with people that are like the one we're having right now. Right. As opposed to, you know, hey, babe, <laughs> what do you, you got uh, issues with your dad, you know? So, um, but it, it, it really feels like, uh, this is something that uh, that it it, 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 it it almost feels like like you were searching for something and the stars really aligned with this one man show that everything kind of came together like you said with TJ with the venue with uh, the oh, Prince yeah. festival the reviews you know Mark Breslin coming out and watching it sure and, and and it continues to be so I mean like so the workshopping and the play that we did last summer right right. Then you go, okay, this has happened. Now I'm going to enter into all these fringe festivals. And then next year, I'm going to go out and do Edmonton and Calgary and, you know, and do all these fringe festivals. Right. Well, that's not what happens. Right. You know, you don't, you don't go, you know, they, what happens is that you get a grant from the Ontario Arts Council to record a CD. Mm-hmm. And then you, uh, you know, you end up only getting into Hamilton, but it's the best festival for you to do right. without being mired in the fringe world. Exactly. So now um, now I'm doing the show at a, a professional comedy club, right. not at some you know, sort of uh, barn that's been turned into a theater for a couple of weeks. Sure. But, you know, a legitimate professional club. There's a poster with Yuck Yuck stamped at the bottom, and all of a sudden it's, you know accredited this right. is a professional show right away absolutely i don't have to like you know do the fringe for you know five years before it 
you know, is a professional show. Sure. It moved um, very quickly into that because I am a professional performer. It just, you know, it went in a di- direction that I personally would not have chosen for it to go. Right. And yet I'm pretty excited about, you know, the show tomorrow night and 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 the opportunity to to be a game changer. Right. I mean, you know, imagine all those young comedians coming out to see that show, see the one-man show, and go, holy shit, this guy is being serious. Right. This guy is speaking from his heart. This guy is being, you know, emotional and talking about, you know, like uh, the trauma of, of an abusive grandmother mm-hmm. and being funny and right. playing the piano and doing poetry. And it's just like blows their mind about what they could actually bring to the, to the stage. Absolutely. And so, um, and I get to be that guy, not because I'm awesome, but because I'm, like, I'm awake. Right. You know, that's what they said to Buddha, are you a god? He said, no, I am awake. Interesting, yeah. And so, you know, when you look at the 12th step, it says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, as the result of these steps, it's the whole point of the 12 steps, is to get spiritually awake. Right. Which means... To be here, present, having this conversation, and not being afraid to say corny or embarrassing things. Sure. To admit that you're a Presbyterian, you know, and, and have people go, what? <laughs> That's so lame. I thought he was cool and funny, but now it turns out that he, you know, has a spiritual life and goes out to meet people and help them. Oh, gross. <laughs> you know? Do you think that that this has been an awakening for you or do you think that the last, I mean, do you ever look back and say, Oh, I could have been doing this for the past 10, 15 years as opposed to just discovering that you could really put this all together in a one man show. Or or do you look back and say, well, I needed to have the life that I had before in addictions and now that's for me to appreciate the show now. Well, you know, the, the part of being spiritually awake is to be present Mm -hmm. What you're talking about, that, that way madness lies. Right. You know, in the fact that, you know, we know that if you're caught in the past, you're depressed. And if you're, you know, in the future, you have anxiety. The only sure. piece there really is is to be in the present. Right. So can I look back to it and go, you know, oh, if only I'd done this sooner, all that kind of stuff? Well, sure, you can speculate about that. I mean, that's the great thing about the past mm-hmm. is you can go back there and you can have win an argument that you lost. Right. And the future's awesome because you can accept your Academy Award. Sure. <laughs> the only problem <clears throat> with the past and the future is that they're bullshit. Right. They're complete and utter fantasy. Right. The problem with the present is that we have no control over it. Right. Right. I could spill that coffee and not have any control over it. We just don't know. Right. But when you... T- so the n- notion of powerlessness... And, you know, and surrendering to that powerlessness is freeing because now I don't have to worry about the future. Mm-hmm. Now, as it turns out, I'm going to be doing um, Sober But Never Clean in Nelson. Right. And in a bookstore. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine I haven't seen in a bunch of years, mm-hmm. lived in Vancouver when I was out in Vancouver, saw what I was doing on Facebook and said, hey, why don't you come out to Nelson and do this at the bookstore? Right. So, because, you know, again, I really didn't know what would happen. I was sort of doomed. Um, You know, the money that I was planning on using to produce the show in Hamilton got spent when my daughter came to Toronto and told me that what she wanted was for us to get matching tattoos. Right. 
So as you can see. Oh, very cool. She, I said to her, I like that what kind of a tattoo? She said, I want a wolf with a moon, black, gray, and white photorealism. I went, holy shit. <laughs> this is like not, this is way past whimsy. <laughs> this girl's, you know, so I, I said, but, but, I said, but tattoos are painful and expensive. And she answered the same way everybody did when I made that statement. <laughs> yes. Yes, they are. <laughs> so, um, so then really it just became a process of, like, I just didn't have the money right. when I had to do this show. I didn't know what I was going to do. Sure. But, you know, if you have children and if you're a father and you have a daughter, then you know that you really, they own you. Right. And so it wasn't really a matter of deciding whether or not I was going to get this matching tattoo. It was just a matter of accepting that I was going to get a tattoo. It figured out how to do it, get it done. And, um, and then the whole uh, process. And then, um, so eventually I realized that the only choice I really had was either this was the trip when my daughter came out to visit me for the first time in Toronto mm -hmm. and we got matching tattoos. Or is the trip that she came out to Toronto for the first time and discovered that her father was a pussy. <laughs> <laughs> and I am a pussy, and I, but I didn't want her to know. Right, right. So now I have a $1,000 tattoo on my it's shoulder. It's a beautiful piece of work, though. It is awesome. And it's a wolf and a moon, black, gray, and white photorealism. A guy named Jason Hawes, who is a rock star of... of Tattoo art, you know, we got done at Adrenaline and uh, on Queen Street, and these places are like, and like Jason said, you don't want to be bargain hunting for tattoos. Exactly. So, you know, I've got one tattoo, and it's beautiful. And I said to Brianna afterwards, I said, you know, women like this tattoo. And she said, see, I'm helping now. <laughs> After 20 years of cock blocking, now... Now I'm helping you land the ladies. Stamped. She's left her stamp on me, and now I'm free to go and ruin my life. See, see what comes of it. Oh, yeah. man. So anyway, my, all my money was gone. Right. I didn't know what I was going to do. and But I also had this, this desire to be able to do the show in recovery centers and treatment centers, just like I'd done in my recovery center, right. my uh, uh, treatment center. King Haven. So I wanted to be able to do it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So I uh, I went through a few publicists. You know, they all I went through three of them, and all of them said, "Oh, I'm the answer to your all your problems." And then all I heard about was their problems after that. <laughs> so <laughs> so so, but one of them had said to me that the best crowdsourcing um, site mm -hmm. was GoFundMe. Right. Indiegogo and Kickstarter, if you don't meet your goal, mm -hmm. you don't get the money. Right. Go or fund me, you do. Right. So I went on my computer and I went, you know, you know, go fund me. And the little video, I watched the video, what, what it's about and how you do it and what's the point of it, all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I set up this account where I put um, that I wanted to say to the people that I wanted to be able to go and take this show to places that couldn't afford it. Right. And um, and be able to you know like maybe inspire and reach uh, um, people you know artists that didn't think that they could be artists in sobriety right. and to say yes you can right right so that's really the the message of sober but never clean is that you can be who you are and you can be who you are even better when you're sober 
right? Definitely. There's this, this belief, this romantic um, misconception that it's our drugs and our booze and our addictions that make us creative. No, I don't believe that there's any evidence of that. Right. All the, you know, the greatest writers got worse as they drank, mm-hmm. right? Very and true. so it was, and and all, you know, the, the so it was in spite of our addictions that we were able to be creative. Mm-hmm. But it requires discipline to, you know, write a poem when you're sober. Right. When you're loaded, you can write and go, awesome, <laughs> man, look at that. Hello, waitress, check this out. <laughs> when you're sober, you, you know, have to put it, uh, a couple of months into it. Yeah. And, and, but of course, the quality of the work is, you know, that much better. So, so anyway, <clears throat> so I write out this little application or this little GoFundMe. And one of the ideas that I had was that, um, because I knew this was going to be kind of a shitty tour. I'm used to airplanes and, you know, hotels, and this was not going to be that way. It was right. going to be buses and uh, billets and stuff like that. Sure. So everything is about perception. So I saw this, this documentary on this thing called the Camino, which is a pilgrimage that people go on in the north of Spain. They walk across the north end of Spain. Right. And middle-class white people walk across the north end of Spain. It's like 1,500 kilometers or whatever. And they stay in hostels and barns and all this kind of stuff. And it's a pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. And it's life-changing for them. Right. So I decided instead of looking at this as some low-rent tour, I will call it a pilgrimage. Excellent. So I put this GoFundMe, the Sober But Never Clean Pilgrimage. Right. And I explained what I was trying to do and that if I could just inspire one artist to believe that he could do or she could do what they could do in sobriety, mm-hmm. that would be worth it. And if I could entertain people while I was doing it, that would be gravy. Right. So I read this all out, and I launched the site, and then I'd look over at the cat, Rudy, and i go, okay, you know, whatever. And then, and then it's, you know, when I launched, it says zero of 5,000 raised. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So I launched this thing, and then Rudy and I were sitting there. And then I, I thought, oh, I'm going to check to see if I typos. You know, I do a little proofreading on the thing. So I go back, and I open up the site again, and it says 50 of 5,000 raised. Right. And I went, Rudy, <laughs> we got this is working. <laughs> Rudy, the good luck. <laughs> and uh, Rudy remained uh, stoic, know, un- unimpressed, going, "Dude, I know you don't believe in anything, do you?" Anyway, so, so you know, the thing Jake, is that nothing changed except my perception of what was going on. Sure, it was just a number on a screen, but it gave me hope. Right. That it was going to be okay. Right. And that's one of the things. I remember I was talking to one of the guys that I help in recovery. And I asked him if he ever felt the presence of God. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, well, you know, when everything is going bad, but you have this feeling that it's going to be okay. Is that what you're talking about? And I just sat there slack jawed going, that is the best description of the presence of God as I've ever heard. Sure. So, so all of a sudden I've got this like, you know, I think it's going to be okay. Right. And the, the reason it's going to be okay is because I put out there that I don't want to do this for the money. I want to do this and not have to worry about the money. Right. And if my friends and my colleagues could help me by throwing in 20 bucks here and 50 bucks there, mm-hmm. then I can do that. Right. So now I'm going to Nelson, right, not knowing whether I'm going to make a cent there. Right. 
but uh, my GoFundMe account is at sixteen hundred dollars now. Awesome for for the month, you know, and um, and that money was raised so that I could do things like go to Nelson and do my show there. Right. right. And so, uh, of course, my ego goes, well, you know, I could. Uh, if I could book some more gigs there and get some more money there and all this kind of stuff, you go, let's stop it. <laughs> Just stop, you entitled douchebag. <laughs> right? Just, you know, like, because, you know, like, like my sponsor reminds me, this is not my talent. This is my higher powers talent. Right. I was not, I didn't grind my teeth you know, grit my teeth and become funny. It just mm -hmm. is. Right. And the whole process of sober, never clean. The show was, you know, just these incremental steps. This getting this grant because somebody had said, "Hey, I thought of you," and I got a hold of Michael. And then, you know, and that oh, the only festival you get into is the only one that Mark Breslin's going to go to. Right. And you know, and then I booked Calgary and Edmonton um, because I thought I was going to be in those fringe festivals. Right. But instead, I'm out here not doing the fringe festivals. But by that point, I get to do the show at. Yuck Yucks, which is way better. Right. We're doing this because this is a, a, a Yuck Yucks podcast. Right. So all the stuff that is now available to me via, because it's at Yuck Yucks, is being brought to bear. You know, when they say, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Mm -hmm. To me, what that means is that, you know, not, you don't just sit back and say, okay, God, you know, like, do this. Right. What it means is that when you begin something, you have no idea how many different forces will be brought to bear right. to, to take that on the path that it needs to go. You just have to keep doing just very simply what's right in front of you, mm -hmm. right? Right in front of you is just like, you know, okay, do the podcast, right? And then do the show tonight. And then, you know, let the, you know, the CBC radio interview that I recorded go, you know, have to have its effect for the show tomorrow. Right. And, you know, like all that stuff, like mm -hmm. the, the, the piano over there, some, you know, the son of uh, an old friend of mine right. hooks me up with the piano and brings it over here. That's right? amazing, man. And all, so, and so all that stuff, but, but it only is a result of your willingness to, to surrender to the fact that you don't know how it's going to turn out. Right. But that you do know what the next right thing is and you have the willingness to do the next right thing. Right. You know, so going, oh, it was that moment with Shrinky where I went, you know, like, ah, oh, <laughs> well, the one reason to do something is because it's the right thing to do. Right. And we know that, that that's, you know, a, a form of, of your higher power is mm -hmm. that, that, that knowledge that goes, you know what you have to do now, are you going to do it? Right. And that's how some people find recovery and some people don't. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Such an inspirational story. How can people find you? How can people find the GoFundMe page? Give me some info on that. Oh, okay. Um, sure. Well, my it's pretty easy. GoFundMe is one word, dot com, and then it would be backslash sober but never clean pilgrimage. Awesome. Probably Richard Lett would hook them up with that as well. Definitely. You know, it's it, it's attached to my Facebook page. Perfect. So that's another way that, that we go. And it's very interesting how how it works that one person, you know, uh, puts in 20 bucks and then that goes to their Facebook page and somebody says, what's this going on? Oh, and they tie it in. Just keeps on linking. Sure. Yeah. And it's the, the power of, of, of 
people and people that that believe in you. Right. And you know, there's been some pretty cool things. An ex girlfriend from years ago. I, you know, she dated me a long time ago. All of a sudden, one day, I'm you know, on GoFundMe, and you know, there's a fifty dollar donation from her. That's awesome. And so I connect with her, and I go, um, you know, thinking like, is there another Richard Lett? <laughs> It's just the right pledge for <laughs> you, you know it's me. And she just said, well, you know, um, how does she put it? Uh, um, life is long, but art is short. and uh, Or something obscure about that. But it was just, you know, part of the pilgrimage is, is finding, you know, I guess a certain amount of forgiveness for what happened sure. years and years ago. Right. And the... That you know that we do have an opportunity to go, you know, you know, yeah, I was a jerk and you were a jerk, and um, but there was, you know, something that we both connected about, and that was, you know, art, right? You know, and so the, the theater sort of brought us back together, and so the opportunity to go and see staff in Vancouver, mm-hmm. you know, if or when I get out there, what all that kind of stuff. Um, is a, a gift of the GoFundMe thing. Right. So what looks like, you know, a desperate cry for, please help me get Go Train money to get to Hamilton to do my little play <laughs> ended up being an opportunity for someone to extend support. Sure. Sometimes people have trouble saying things like, I forgive you or I love you or I understand now. Mm-hmm. But they... But, you know, they can take their credit card and, you know, send 50 bucks. Absolutely. And, and although, you know, and then sometimes that's, that's just good enough. Absolutely. You know. Yeah. And things can move from there. So. Definitely. And uh, as far as the, um, the show itself, uh, Sober But Never Clean, uh, if there's people who are at, uh, in, Treatment centers, counselors, or administrators, uh, anywhere, uh, I would love the opportunity to come and do the, uh, the show for people that are, you know, fighting the good fight mm-hmm. in, in recovery, as well as, you know, I guess there's doctors out there that have conferences and I could do, uh, you know, a show for them or Absolutely. all that, that kind of stuff. But, um, you know... My sister gets mad at me because she says, you know, you just don't want to make any money. That's your problem. And I said, well, you know, she said, if this thing became a big, you know, the apex of your career, wouldn't that make you happier? And I went, I don't know. I'm pretty happy right now. Right. It was interesting. There was an interview with John Cleese, you know, the Monty Python oh, yeah. guy. And they, the interviewer said, because he was dealing with depression and anxiety, and he was, she said, well, aren't you worried that if you find happiness... It might ruin your career. <laughs> he goes, I don't care. I'll be happy. You know, this is so weird about people. <laughs> I tell you, man. Well, it's an inspirational story, and it was a real honor to sit down with you, Richard. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. Okay. And no Garrett Clark? No Garrett Clark. Screw you, Garrett. Screw- <laughs> Garrett. Here, in- do this impersonation. Garrett Car- Clark is a loser. <laughs>
All right, and there you have it, folks. The interview with Richard Lett. Of course, in a day and age where we lose so many fine talent to the devils of alcohol abuse and drug abuse, Richard Lett is out there leading the charge for sobriety and better living. So I salute you, Mr. Richard Lett. Thank you for sitting down with us and doing that interview. On behalf of myself, Jake Hirsch, Mr. Mark Breslin, executive producer Kira Williams, the webmaster Camille, and of course all of us here at Yuck Yucks, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.